Come on. Come on. Chris, what are you doing? I'm trying to open this beer can with my mind. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? You know, like Carrie in the movie. That's ridiculous. Hey, back off, man. I'm a scientist. You're a scientist. Are you, Brian, menstruating right now? Are you a crazy person, or do you just play one on this podcast? You know, you say that, but recent research indicates that telekinesis is entirely possible with supreme focus and force of will. Besides, chicks dig dudes with mind powers. You misunderstand. When I say ridiculous, I mean you're working too hard. We're on the radio, man. If you should just say that you did it with your mind, how would anyone refute you? Ah, right. Holy shit, mind beer! You can edit this, right? Totally. Digital dudes and high-def honeys, welcome to another sonorous episode of Digital Noise right here on oneofus.net. Yes, that is where you are. Today's word is sonorous. And now I have control of you. Oh no! You will move the pointer on your screen to the images of Amazon pictures, <laughs> and you will click on them, and you will purchase things. We are not above using hypnosis to continue to fund the site. Uh, this is, of course, the only Blu-ray DVD review podcast whose alternate ending is far better than the original. We'll leave it to you to figure out what that means. <laughs> I am your host, Brian Salisbury, so there's that. And I am joined by a man who needs no liposuction, Christopher Lawrence Cox. It's not a matter of needs, it's more of a want. It's cosmetic, sure. I understand. Yeah. I'm Much like cats, vacuum cleaners scare me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it is sort of like a, a disgusting flesh vacuum. Pretty much. Yeah, and what do you do with that afterwards? I mean, they, you they, make soap. They're making a sequel to Fight Club, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Okay, there you go. Right. How you doing, Chris? I'm all right. I'm ready to talk about some movies, though. I tell you what, man, it's been a long week since the last Digital Noise. I'm, I'm, I'm psyched. Hell yeah. I love, I love my job or my. I guess at this point now it's more of a hobby. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love this volunteer gig that we put so many hours into. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Which, you know, you can help with that out there. You can. One of the ways you can help is by becoming a subscriber to the site. Right there on the right-hand side, you'll see a little button that takes you to a place where you can pledge $1 to $25 every month. Or you can just make a one-time donation. Uh, we really appreciate anything you can give. You can cancel it at any time if things change. Uh, but that that's one of the ways that you can help us continue to create this content for you. You can also visit our store, uh, which we also have a link to. We, we have a lot of helpful links right there in that sidebar. We do. We are just, just it's a linkathon, really. It's more of an orgy of links than anything else. We should be lawyers with as much as we use the sidebar. It's but true. the point being, the store has lots of cool shirts, lots of cool ways for you to uh, put it out there in the universe that you are, in fact, a member of Us Nation. Or you can just purchase commentaries, and we are actually in the process of putting together a lot more of those. Uh, actually, on our forum, which is uh, forum.oneofus.net, you can go and vote for your three worst movies of 2013, and whichever the top three are at the end of the week, 
we're actually going to go in and do commentaries for those three movies, two of which we're giving away for free. Why did I have this idea? It's Why? terrible. Why did I decide think this was a good thing? No, 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 no. You're the worst, <laughs> and you might be responsible for our downfall ultimately, or at least our complete mental collapse. Yeah, I was going to say, complete, absolute psychological destruction. Definitely. Some of the movies that came out this year, I intentionally did not see because I was aware of how bad they would be. Yeah, so some of these is going to be like, hey, a whole new experience for us <laughs> as it stabs into our eyeballs and through our brains. And as we mentioned before, you can click on any of the links you see on the page here of the Amazon images of the movies titles we'll be talking about today. That'll bring you to Amazon where if you buy that title or even if you go from that, you know, just as long as you go through our link, you go on and you go and buy, I don't know, a dildo or something after that, a box of cereal, whatever it is. We don't get a- buy a dildo and a box of cereal, though. That's a weird cart to no, no, bring to the checkout. That's fine. Just don't have both of them in your suitcase when you're going through airport security. There but you that's go. That's a whole other story. Definitely. I'll save for greatest drunk stories or something. But um, <laughs> no matter what you go on, we get whatever you end up getting. As long as you get through our links, we get a kickback from that as well. It doesn't hurt if you are going there to buy one of the movies we told you about why not leave a review in the messages saying hey you heard about this through oneofus.net uh they did not steer you wrong you should check out those guys at digital noise for all of your home viewing needs i'm just trying to think of now a way to combine dildos and cereals and all i can think of is like honey nut o faces or something uh, maybe you won't like a crunchy dildo i don't know you could, like <laughs> just take some honey and put it on there and then you just kind of like batter it with no crunchy dildo it's the way you're looking at me says be quiet that sounds like i don't know that sounds like a code phrase to get into some nightclub in austin that's on the seedier part of town <laughs> yes the password is crunchy dildo that'll be if we ever have a one of us club that'll be it that'll be the permanent secret phrase before this show is over there will be someone in the comment section who is going by the handle crunchy dildo yeah or ghost tits ghost tits <laughs> uh crunchy word. dildo and ghost tits buddy cops all the way <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, you can also find us on iTunes. Just search one of us in the podcast section. You can follow this show specifically on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast, or you can follow the whole site at OneOfUsNet. And we're also on Facebook, Facebook.com slash OneOfUsNet. Keep in mind, the Digital Noise page will be going bye-bye after the 31st of this month. So, I don't know, go take pictures and, and wish it well. It's, I don't know. It's, it's just getting fused into the OneOfUs.net yeah. page, so don't be afraid. Nothing's happening in Digital Noise. We're just cleaning house a bit and tightening yeah. Tightening our ship. Yeah, I'm trying yeah. to slim down a little bit. That's kind of what I'm bringing to the site in general. Yeah. We're so. liposuctioning the site itself. There you go. See yes. how we brought that back around? No more fat. No more fat. Well, it's time to reach out to the Innisfere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open that most questionable of coffers we call... The Letterbox. You've got mail. Yes, the letterbox. Thank you very much, Torgo. And uh, actually, we had some interesting questions. We had multiple people asking us uh, essentially the same question, so I thought I'd just kind of lump them together. Uh, a couple different people asking us what movies we watch to lift our spirits, either when we're sick or we have the blues. So You know, it's funny. There's two types of movies for lifting your spirits for me. The first kind is the kind where you like really enjoy somebody else's misery <laughs> you know yeah. uh like but it has to still be fun in its own way but ultimately a film that's very very sad as long as it's not sad all the way through is good i, I like moulin rouge for that myself i thought you were gonna say irreversible <laughs> no 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 not irreversible but you know what i mean like something that's ultimately tragic at the end then you like don't feel so bad at the, afterwards by comparison like, at least yeah. my girlfriend's not dying of tuberculosis so, yeah that i know of that you know of. Uh, the other kind, of course, is is tends to be more nostalgic than anything else. Nostalgic fun. 
and often stuff that has a little tinge of like maybe philosophy to it, just to, not enough to beat you over the head with it. One of my ones I go back to again and again is Groundhog's Day. Oh yeah, that's one of those I just like, especially now that like I love Bill Murray now more than I ever did, even back in his Ghostbusters days. I mean, he is literally a a demigod now. I mean, mm. he has ascended to the heavens and become this iconic thing that we're not sure what powers he does or doesn't <laughs> have. <laughs> you know, I, he's so powerful. I fully expect that every time I watch Groundhog's Day, it's going to be a little bit different <laughs> it might be he's gonna tweak it just that much yeah exactly uh i guess for me the answer is rocky four rocky four rocky four and and specifically the last 20 minutes of rocky four yeah just about the time that the russian gets cut and and rocky has a chance again and then that ridiculous ending where rocky basically takes credit for the fall of the berlin wall and the end of communism something about the unbridled and absurd triumph of the end of that film always makes me happy. You know, if you uh, go in a darkened room with candles and a Ouija board and you watch that movie and Red Dawn back to back, you mm-hmm. will become possessed by the spirit of Ronald Reagan. What? It's true. We got to try this. It's true. It's I fact. do love jelly beans. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I guess I guess the answer for me is just Rocky IV. I'd never, I didn't think it would come down to one specific movie. But that is absolutely what it is. I mean, admittedly, it depends on what's going on. But yeah, when you're really down, you want to watch something familiar, to be sure. Something that, like, you don't have to think too hard about. You're just going to enjoy. So there you go. It's funny. When I'm sick, I like to watch movies, like, where people are ridiculously active. Like, I'll watch District B-13 when I'm sick and watch those people free run, even though I can't – I can barely move. That's a great exercise program you got going on Yep. (laughs) I watch other people work out. That's how I do it. Wow. If there was a way they could, like, hook up, like, electrodes to you or something that would, like, stimulate your muscles in the right way while you're watching, like, martial arts films, man, I would be trim as hell. Dr. Krieger and I are working on that. Don't you worry. get that going because I prefer it to the alternatives. Indeed. Uh, we also had a question from Cameron Russell who asks, what are some of the movies that are on your regret list? In other words, movies you've always wanted to see or have been told to see but have not yet. You know, I, I'll tell you this. It doesn't matter how long you live. There will always be movies that you just didn't get around to yet. And doing this show over mm-hmm. the years, this and the previous show of the same but a different name. Yes. Uh has given me a lot of opportunity to catch up with stuff because they send re-releases all the time of classic movies. I really, those are some of my favorite things to review are those. Cause I'm like, Oh, it's on AFI's top 100. I got to watch it. Yeah. Uh, and I admittedly, I was just looking at the top 100 list. I'm like, wow, I've just the last three years alone. I've knocked out like another 20, 30% of this list. Sure. But there are still those. I still I'm just looking at I was like, wow, I can't believe I haven't seen um, two Westerns for me. And I love Westerns, but two of the most famous ones of all time. I've never seen high noon with Gary. Cooper. Oh, so good. Never, ever seen it. And Shane. Never seen it. I actually haven't seen Shane either. I only know my only thing I know about Shane is the Bill Hicks joke about Shane. The, right. Pick up the gun. <laughs> yes, some um, he had a gun. <laughs> that is your Shane shame. Yes. And then uh strangely, even though I'm not the world's biggest Frank Capper fan, I've been told by many people how much I would enjoy personally Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I love Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, I haven't seen that one and either. And that's you know, like it's the newsroom of its time. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? And then last of all, of course, as much as I love gangster films and like really the the, the this hyper violent seventies, Bonnie and Clyde. Really, never seen it. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah I like that one a lot. Um, I'm sure there's a lot more, but those are just like some of the biggest ones. Well, I think I think you're right. I think everybody has blind spots, and that's no matter how many movies you watch. The des- first of all, the designation of of what constitutes a classic will change from year to year. Sure, and there will be movies kind of added to that. It will be you know movies that people don't talk about as much, and there'll be movies you just see somehow or another. It'll be on TV or something, and you won't even think about how that's accomplished filling in a a blind spot for you but 
for me, a lot of there's a lot of movies actually in the year I was born that I haven't seen. I haven't seen Bachelor Party. I haven't seen The Natural. Oh. I haven't seen and you know and then you get into things that aren't even necessarily classics, but maybe cult classics like Toxic Avenger. Yeah, things like that. I you haven't don't seen. like trauma. So I don't like trauma, but I've been told by many people that Toxic Avenger is kind of a standout film. For it's, I mean, as 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 goofy as it may be, I've heard, and again, I'm just yeah. going on. It's, word of it's, mouth it's here. very much a trauma film, like all the other trauma films. It's just a little better than all the others. Yeah, and I feel like this is actually a nice segue to announce a uh, a blog series that I'm going to be doing starting this week, uh, called the Thirty Dozen. Uh, it's it's basically what I'm doing is I recognized a few weeks ago that not only is this the year that I'm turning thirty, but there are a lot of movies from 1984 that I should have seen by now that just for whatever reason I haven't. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to go watch those movies and I'm going to kind of relate the experience of seeing these movies and, and talk about what happens in the movies to what it means for me as a geek to turn 30 and, and to finally feel like I've kind of come out of the baby zone because when I first started doing this, I was always the you know the the youngest, the, the kid. So It's the viewing of age party. The viewing of age party, absolutely. <laughs> Um, so we're going to play a little bit of blind spot bingo in that, in that blog series. We're going to do once one a month. That's why it's called the 30 dozen. Cause it's a dozen movies all about, uh, all that are all 30 years old or about to turn 30 years old. Just like me. I have seen the dirty dozen. I have not seen the boys from Brazil, even though I've owned it for like eight years. There you go. <laughs> those are two very similar movies. I don't know why, but those always go back to back in my head, even though there's nothing, there's no similarity other than they both involve Hitler, I guess. But <laughs> <laughs> Okay, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they, but, like however tertiary. But. Hey, whatever works. But yeah, the, the first 30 dozen will be up this week. I hope you guys enjoy that. Yeah, I look forward to listening to it myself. Hooray! Well, it's reading it. It's actually oh, like with reading. words. Oh, uh, uh, see now. I know, right? That's hard. I yeah. don't know. I gotta put on my glasses because I'm old. I'm just. I'm happy to get back to it because <laughs> I haven't done any like creative writing in a long time, as far as you know, movies go. I've you been... were always very strong at it. All the stuff well, thanks, I used man. to write with uh, Film School Rejects was like, I'd you know read it intending like, okay, well, I'll link this to you know my friends writing this, but then go, wow, I would link this anyway. This is a really good article. Thanks, so, man. I appreciate your that. Old junk food cinema stuff was terrific. Yeah, no, that's something else I really want to get back into. But yeah, this will be a nice little, uh, nice little amuse bouche for my creative writing. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. But it's like a pre appetizer. All right, fair enough. It, it just means you're going to be hungry again very, very soon. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for the letterbox, guys. Thank you so much for sending in your questions. And now, as always, it's time for the reviews. And we're going to start with something quite scary. And if your prom gets set on fire, it might get a little hairy. But you know right now we're about to talk about the remake of Gary. The Stand. The Stand. <laughs> <laughs> no, not the remake of The Stand. That's not doesn't exist yet. Uh, this, of course, is the latest attempt to grab onto yet another Stephen King title and just suck every last dollar out of it. You know what I think is funny about this? This cracks me up is the fact that this remake of like a very well received original film that Brian, De I mean, arguably Brian De Palma's best movie, uh, you know, depending on what you like. For I me, would say that's arguable, it's, but yeah. it's, it's, for me, it's one of his best films. I'm not the world's biggest Brian De Palma fan though, but it was very well received at the time. And yes, it's extremely dated. In fact, we did a commentary for you. Can we listen did to where we have much fun at the expense of the datedness of it. But what's funny about all this is Stephen King came out and said, why would you remake it when the original was so good? And you're like, 
Weren't you the one screaming about The Shining? <laughs> yeah, let's talk about Stephen King for a second. He's also the guy that said, when it comes to adapting his his books into movies, if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself, and, and made then, Maximum Overdrive. Which, in its own way, is right. Which is great, but you think about the people that had adapted his work so far, he was basically saying, I'm a better director than Stanley Kubrick, Brian De Palma, John Carpenter, yeah, yeah, just run it's, on down the list. Yeah, a huge list of like great directors yeah. who didn't always make great films out of his Books, to be sure. True but, story. Yeah. But Carrie actually is surprising in that it doesn't appear to be just a quick money grab either. The problem ultimately with it is that despite the fact that obviously a lot of effort went into this, they got a good people playing the roles. Chloe Grace Moretz playing uh, Carrie White and Julianne Moore turning in just a hell of a performance. So as, to speak. As, yeah. As uh, Carrie's psycho, super hyper Christian mother. Despite like a lot of work that went into make the making this, obviously they did. You know, like I said, they weren't slacking. There's a point in this that you just go, but why? Just like Stephen King said, you're like, mm -hmm. why are you remaking it? Because you're even though there, yes, there are some things that are different. For instance, now the you know we have cell phones and stuff, so they add cyberbullying and stuff with the girls in school bullying and stuff like that. You know, to make it feel more modern day. And even though there's a lot more focus on Julianne Moore on Carrie's mom, which I think is the strongest point of this film because mm -hmm. she's just so just crazy but you still kind of feel bad for her at the same time because she's just i mean she's like not evil crazy so much as like just flat out like a crazy person who desperately needs help yeah even with those things most of the time you're just like well why don't i just watch the original carry see and i feel like that's a real missed opportunity of this movie because one of the things they could have explored and it would have been a change from the original at least the original film uh, would be the idea to make Carrie a more artistic type student, somebody who is, uh, especially if she's a writer or a photographer, or even a filmmaker, because then you have the ability to, to make a statement about the fact that, especially in horror, there aren't a lot of female directors. True. So, and you have Kimberly Pierce doing a remake of Carrie about a, a girl who is singled out and isolated and different and how, how the kind of dangers of ostracizing someone, you could have been making a statement about the genre itself, I felt like, if they had just tweaked a little bit about Carrie's... I feel like there were so many opportunities, maybe if you don't even go that route, but so many opportunities like that were just left on the table. Well, you know, Kimberly Pierce, the director who also is most famous for doing Boys Don't Cry, which Correct. is a wonderful film, and then Stop Loss, which is pretty good as well, uh, she said repeatedly during the commentary for this, apparently, that she referred to it as a superhero origin story. And certainly... Like, you can see with the type of films that are around today why she would want to hit that angle a little bit more. And, and sort of like in the original, you see Sissy Spacek, whenever anything happens, she's just kind of surprised by it. By yeah. these, like, she like never really, she, she makes no peace with the fact that she has telekinetic powers until it's time to just say, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to kill everybody. And even <laughs> you know? then, it, and even then, it almost feels like she's not entirely aware. Like, she's almost in a fugue state yeah, when that happens. Chloe Moretz is. Uh, like, I wrote, somebody said this so much better than I ever could, but th they were saying that, like, I, in this day and age uh, of, like, strong, kick-ass woman, Kimberly Pierce wanted Carrie to turn into one of those. She wanted her to be Hit Girl. She wanted her, well, not, maybe not <laughs> Hit Girl, but more effective than Hit Girl. Yeah, no sure. shit. But, you know... When she starts getting her powers, I mean, there's sequences that feel like they're right out of Chronicle, where she's like, whoa, this is cool, making shit float around the room and getting more and more powerful, which is neat in its own way. But when you start going that direction, what do you sacrifice? You sacrifice scary. And True. there is not a lot of scary in this version of Carrie. No scary in this Carrie. And, you know, like I said, it's a shame because ultimately this isn't a bad movie at all. In fact, I would go so far as to say it's a good movie. It just is so incapable of surprising you. 
that you still go at the end, well, that was a nice exercise, but what was the point? It's actually funny that you mentioned that she talked about it being a superhero origin story because there were two very distinct changes that I noticed because for most of the movie, I was like, okay, there's not much here that's different. And then two distinct changes I noticed happen toward the end of the, the famous prom scene and then at the very end of the movie, the final shot – both of which make more sense in a superhero origin story than they do in anything we've seen, even in this version of Carrie. They just kind of come out of left field, and I wasn't really a big fan of them, uh, without the, spoiling too uh, much. The, the main thing I can say that I really did not like was the very last shot, which was such a throwaway 80s horror movie stunt of a thing to do, yeah. that it feels totally out of pace with everything else that's happened in this movie. Now, I know that the Blu-ray, which I did not receive, mm. uh, comes with an alternate ending, but I, I did not Let me tell it. you something about the way this Blu-ray was authored, and it's not just this one. It, it's something they do in a lot of them that drives me up the fucking wall. If you don't hit unrated version right at the beginning, like right before it plays, you cannot get to that alternate ending. Okay. Which means I went all through all of the deleted and alternate takes, which are an extra. The ending is not there. So you actually have to fast forward. You have to the... turn it off and turn it back on. Yeah. And then select, you know, the... Why not have a separate thing where yeah. you can just watch that? So I didn't even see the damn alternate ending because by the time I figured out what was going on, I was so frustrated. I was like, you know what? Fuck this. I don't even care anymore. <laughs> uh, the one thing that I will say that's nice here, I mean, there is, of course, the commentary of director Kim Kimberly Pierce. A lot of deleted scenes here with optional commentary. There's some uh, looks at some of the special effects. But the coolest thing here is they add the telekinetic coffee shop surprise, which was a promotional thing they did. Which that was, was pretty awesome. Cooler than anything that's actually in the movie where they set up this whole coffee shop with with like you know stuff that could move violently with this girl and like just filmed a variety of people coming in and out after resetting it with her freaking out and everything flying off the walls and going crazy it was pretty awesome it was pretty awesome yeah i have dreamed my entire life of being able to do that to my friends we've got to figure <laughs> out a way to pull that off yeah like one halloween we'll just have the halloween party where suddenly somebody freaks out tony freaks out starts screaming at you and everything starts exploding yeah yeah i'm into it i love it i love the idea uh but ultimately like i said i think this is a good movie it's just it's unfortunate fortunate that they should have taken this and the ideas they had and gone, you know what, why are we remaking Carrie? Let's go and take this and just make it into something else. And the unpolished CG at points was kind of, kind of took me out of it. Like, I'm not saying all the CG in, the, in this movie is bad, but it's not po points. Well, it's there are just, points where it's just like, really? That's the best pass of this you could do? Like you said, unpolished yeah. is what it comes down to. It's like, okay, it's not, it's not like, we're not looking at sci-fi channel here no. or something. It's just considering it should have been a little better. Also got to throw out points here for Judy Greer, who plays like a teacher here who's sympathetic to Carrie, who I really actually liked the different take she did with the character here than the, the same version of her character in the original movie. Yeah. But yeah, this is one of those, I mean, if you're a huge fan of Stephen King, actually, you're just a huge fan of Chloe Grace, Grace Moretz or, or Julianne Moore. It's yeah. certainly worth checking out for them alone. They're both great, even though I would argue casting a girl who's just as precious and cute as Chloe Moretz is a little weird decision to cast as well, the role of Carrie. Yeah, because but... it, it puts a weird falsity on the entire school, like not liking her or ostracizing her. It's like she seems like she's – I'm know... sure there's lots of awkward-looking actresses out there who would have been perfect for yeah. this. But yeah. yeah I don't it's know. like that scene where it's like, take Carrie to prom? Ooh, and it's like, are you kidding? She's adorable. Yeah, like, I mean, look at her. <laughs> why would you want to take Carrie to prom? And yeah. then you realize. It's like okay. high school kids are shallow, but they're also shallow enough to look at a girl who's attractive and go, you know what? I don't care if she is crazy. <laughs> That's true. That's true. High school kids <laughs> Might give and me a better chance of getting that blowjob or something. Oh, I don't know. Lord. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Virtual telepathic blowjob. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, this is more of an actor showcase than it is anything um, unique or inspiring, you know, new brought to the story. Sorry. 
Sorry, Gary. We, we apologize, but that's just how it we is. We apologize as if we made the movie. Uh, I, but... I feel responsible somehow. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> well, let's rush into our next title, which is indeed Rush. Which I assume is a video game on the N64 about being able to do stunts and, it's the and racing. It's movie called Rush. Oh, okay. What is with all the movies called Rush? I like San Francisco Rush myself. No, that's not a movie. Though. No, it's a video yeah, game. San Francisco Rush. Isn't there one that's like... 2099 yes. or something like that too yeah the stunt course was always my favorite no geez <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the early sit down games but anyway that has nothing to do with this movie <laughs> except they both involve cars this is last year's uh biographical sports drama film directed by ron howard who is doing you know ron howard sometimes treads on the triacly a little bit too much for my taste uh even some of his really good films uh, that i've liked quite a bit like uh, a beautiful mind and stuff mm-hmm. tend to be a little too naked gazy at points rush is a very different kind of animal certainly i mean the title says it all this movie is high velocity and is the best racing scenes ever filmed plus if you stare at your own navel for even a second you're gonna fucking crash <laughs> that's you don't want to be doing that if you're a formula one driver as is chris hemsworth here in this film uh playing james hunt a real life uh race car driver in the 1970s who developed a really hardcore rivalry with another driver, uh, Nicky Lauda, who was from Austria, I believe. The Lauda, uh, the better. Played here by uh, Daniel Brühl. Uh, you know, whereas Daniel Brühl's, or, or, sorry, um, Nicky Lauda's whole take on racing was very, it, it was just very mathematical. It was mm-hmm. very, like, just all scientific. And uh, James Hunt's take on it was all, like, you know, it's it's heroism. It's it's like, you know, it's, it's an adventure. It's all from the heart. And... The movie presents them as really not being able to stand each other. Apparently, in real life, that was not true at all. I mean, they yeah. would fuck with each other, but ultimately, they were, even from the beginning, they were pretty good friends. But that wouldn't have made as good of a movie. <laughs> no, I mean, it's one of the things they play up even now in sports. When when two teams happen to play each other, they always, especially like, okay, I'll give you an example that you're not going to care about. But in the recent <laughs> AFC championship between the Broncos and the Patriots, because Brady and Peyton Manning are such legendary quarterbacks, they try to play it up as like, oh, this big rivalry. And it's like, no, they just happen to be in the same game. Like, they don't give a shit about fans, that. Fans want to believe, like, there's a lot more in the hell. I can tell you what that's like just recently. Yeah, <laughs> People there you like, go. Man, I hear you and Corey hate each other. Oh, like, my God. It's so ridiculous. over it. <laughs> Jesus oh, Christ. Oh, it's not true. It from nowhere. Oh. All right. So, anyway, uh, Rush despite it's a little bit of flight of fantasy there on that one and exaggerating that is largely based on the truth. Even there's a lot of bonus features on here with the real life Nikki Lauda, who's pretty old now talking about like, he loved this. He mm-hmm. was surprised by how absolutely accurate it was and watching them go back and forth kind of constantly on each other's like tails, literally yeah. for years as they're trying to move towards being grand champion of the world. Uh, is actually quite a fa- fascinating and adventurous story. You end up, despite the fact Nicky Lauda is such a little prick, such a little rat-faced prick, you start to understand him as it goes on. And and you are sort of like in James Hunt's shoes there because you want to just root for him. You're like, yeah, he's good looking. All the ladies love him. And boy, do they, man. He fucks all sorts of hot women to get totally naked. Mostly fast women. Yeah, yeah. yeah what are you going to do? Like He hooks up with Olivia Wilde for a while. You're like, if you can get Olivia Wilde, you've already won. Indeed. So, uh, you know, fuck the checkered flag. <laughs> <laughs> you won, all right? Open your beer, relax, you won. Totally. Uh, they, You see, as you're, you know, like he's sort of who we're looking more through the eyes of, but he even starts to respect Nikki as time goes on through here, and it it delicately makes this transition happen of them becoming real friends as the movie goes on. Uh, 
despite the fact that it is that sense of competition with each other that keeps them both going, even in the midst of like real and serious danger. Um, like they're saying it in the beginning of this movie, two to three people die doing formula one every year. And there's not a lot of people doing it to begin with. At yeah. least this is what it was like back then. So every race was, you know, your life was literally on the line and the movie manages to really make you feel that fear for these characters. Well, see, that's the thing is I'm actually, I, I still have not had a chance to see this, but uh, what got me interested in it was, uh, you know, after we reviewed Senna, you know, all those many, many months ago. Yeah, which was fucking amazing. Which is also about a Formula One rivalry and, and sort of the, the dangers that go along with it. And there was so much footage of them in their actual cars that it felt like a narrative feature. So I was interested to see an actual narrative feature about that. Plus, I like the strange dichotomy of like, you have a character that's kind of, uh, presented as a jock and a character is presented as sort of a nerdier, but they're both jocks still. Like it's, it's weird that you have like this, this weird sort of, uh, differences even within the same group. And yeah, no, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing this. Yeah. As well, you should. This is actually, and I didn't see this in the theater. I didn't see this till at home on Blu-ray where I just was, did as advised by friends, turn off the lights, turn the volume way up with surround because it will shake your oh, living room and just let it wash over you. And this really is one of the best movies of 2013. Highly, highly recommend this film. There's uh, 32 minutes about the making of the film, which is actually, I, I rarely sit through all of that sort of thing, but I did with this because you're really interested in how they shot a lot of this stuff. Uh, the real story of Rush, 19 minutes on that, that interview, you know, that take a look at old interviews with James Hunt and Nikki Lauda and then new stuff with Nikki Lauda. Look at the actual cars that were involved at the time, what it was like then when it was just crazy and everybody was partying their asses off in the 70s. And then a lot of deleted scenes. So this has offered you a lot more than ju not just a really damn good and, and exciting movie to watch, but like all those bonus features as well. This is so worth your money. And I will caution you that if, if what Chris has been saying <laughs> has interested you to see the movie, just go ahead and do it. Don't look up any trailers. What I found about the trailers for this movie, particularly this year, it was really, I mean, not spoiler in the sense of like, here's all the big surprises, but it almost went plot point by plot point by plot point to the to the point that I felt like I could go, okay, here's the entire story based on the trailer. Well, it's funny that, like, the first 30, 40 minutes of this film, you'll be going, this is a very traditional rise and fall story. Except it turns out it's not at all. Mm -hmm. And it goes direction you really wouldn't expect it to. And with a good deal of, like... Like I said, not beating you over the head over it, but emotional delicacy and making these things and these these characters seem real and the way they end up becoming more friends than enemies seem real. So, right on. yeah, no, really, really recommend this. In fact, this is – and it's hard to say this because there are so many great picks this week. So many good movies we're talking about this week, and this is still my pick of the week. Kick ass. Well, that was Rush. And from there, we're going to talk about Short Term 12. See, this was the other one. I was like, oh, God, this is another one hard to hard to wait. Is Rush really my pick of the week? I don't know. Because short term 12 fucking blew me away and made me cry like a 12 year old girl. I've always told you you resemble a 12 year old girl. Really? Thank you. You're welcome. Right at this age, with this amount of weight, I actually find that kind of sweet. <laughs> you didn't go to my school. The 12 year olds were kind of it's the portly. Pig, it's the pigtails, isn't it? It is. I really so. wish you'd get rid of those. I, come on. I like them. I think they're very becoming. They're manly these days. Some, <laughs> well, I've read that somewhere. That's a long-term problem. Uh, but in the short term, what's going on with this film? 
<laughs> sure. Did you get to see this one? I actually didn't. Oh, I'm, I'm, you've got to take a chance to watch it because this is one of those movies I can see easily people missing because it looks like a little forgettable indie film. I mean, I thought when I first heard about this, when it uh, debuted at the 2013 South by Southwest Film Festival, this is going to be one of those movies only people who lived in Austin are ever going to remember. <laughs> you know, it's a very <laughs> Austin type film. I think it was even made in Austin. Uh, I was like, okay, it's one of those we're all like patting each other on the back for this decent but not wonderful film that came out. And then I saw it and went, holy shit, this one deserves to be on the Oscars best picks of the, you know, best picture uh, shortlist because it is wonderful. It's told through the eyes of Brie Larson, who plays Grace. Uh, she's 20 something. Uh, she works at a foster care facility for at risk teenagers, an odd one. I don't know much about this world to be sure, but in this case, apparently, uh, if somebody actually leaves the grounds, they can't do anything about it. They can't touch them. They can't do anything after that. They're free to go. But before they get off the grounds, they're fully allowed to dive, tackle, and drag them back in. <laughs> I don't know how this works, but we our movie launches with them basically doing that, like someone going, ah, emergency! Maybe one it's of the a, kids, like the like, cornfield in Field of Dreams. Right? One of the kids booking ass towards the baseball players. No, one of the kids booking <laughs> ass out of the thing, and they, they, they grab them and throw them back in there. Uh, she works in there with her long-term boyfriend and co-worker Mason, played by John Gallagher Jr., who I did not recognize at all while I was watching this, but I was like, what well, I did recognize, like, where do I know him from? Uh, you know him because he's on, or at least I, I do, from the newsroom where he plays Jim Harper. Oh, um, right on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's very. he looks very different with a full beard and everything here. But, you know, they're nice people, and they have a, what seems to be a good relationship, at least. And as the movie goes on, as we see them struggling to help these kids, and, and certain kids in particular who more come to the forefront, we learn that... Grace has her own set of emotional problems. She herself comes from a troubled background and it's affecting her own relationship. Like I, I know that all this, you hearing all this does not sound like, oh, this is thrilling. I must see this immediately. This thing is so intellectually and emotionally honest. It's so touching without ever making you want to punch somebody for, for manipulating you or pulling heartstrings. For, for touching you. Well, you know what I mean? It's not <laughs> one of those movies that, that has those big like, oh, look what just, we surprised you because it turned out she had been raped the whole time. Look how schmaltzy. Like you know, look, yeah. I, you know, it's, yeah, it's not that kind of thing at all. It's very smart. It's incredibly well acted by Brie Larson, who this is her, this was her moment. You know, this is the one who came out like, wait, Brie Larson? What's she doing next? Now I care. Yeah. <laughs> no, definitely. She had a hell of a year. She, yeah, she really did. But this was the one for her where it was like, wow, an, a really excellent movie that'll go places you don't expect it to uh, and will pull things out of you complex feelings out of you that you probably didn't even know you had. It's like riding a bike for the first time in 10 years where some muscles start to hurt and you're like, ow. She really put the seat back on I, that I thing. I didn't even know I had a muscle there. <laughs> it's like that, but with your brain. Your brain is in the spokes and wait a minute. I've, I've lost the thread of this bicycle metaphor. Uh, you know, I'm glad to see that so many people took to this movie and it got so popular because the, uh, they actually put out a great Blu-ray edition of this. I ex fully expected to get a bare bones DVD, but you get a Blu-ray with a 22 minute behind the scenes. A look at the music, uh, the recording sessions of the film. The music's pretty good here too. 22 minutes of deleted scenes. The original short film of short term 12 that got them the money to turn it into a full feature, a casting crew screening, uh, featuring, I believe it's the band that, 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 uh, that's involved with this. And then of course, as it should, a page with websites that offer support for foster kids and families. But the, yeah, this is, I like, tr just trust me on this one. Smart, 
funny, incredibly well acted, just a perfect package when so easily these things can go terribly wrong. This one hits the nail on the head at every turn. Short-term 12 is absolutely fantastic. Chris says, just trust him and get in the van when it comes to short-term 12. <laughs> it's free candy. It seems legit. Right? Well, we talked about what a great year Brie Larson has, and that's evident in the fact that we're moving from short-term 12 right into the spectacular now, in which she also appears. Yes, she does, doesn't she? <laughs> As a very different type of character. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I actually, you know what? I'm not always a, a huge fan of sort of teen rom-coms. I feel like they're very hit or miss for me, and mostly because I feel like they're not they're not speaking to me. They're not targeting people my age. They're targeting people younger than me. So it, I, I understand why they don't always hit me, but they don't always hit me. This one I really, really enjoyed, and I think no small part of that comes from Miles Teller, oh, who sure. I find just to be kind of effortlessly charming. This is as much as uh, Short Term 12 is the wow Brie Larson's really good actress, uh, like her big film of 2013. This is that film for Miles Teller, who, who you're like, wow, I had seen that guy and stuff, but had no idea he was this good. Yeah, and this this kind of is a, a turn on the ear of the concept that you see in in teen comedies all the time about you know the guy who really wants to get with the with the hot girl and and he doesn't recognize that sort of the the quote unquote homely girl right you know who's been with him the whole movie is really the one he's supposed to be with. It, it's not quite that. It's basically like a bare bones version of that where they aren't playing that up commercially. It's it's that story, but with a lot more heart and a lot more thought put into it because it's he's more emotionally complex than I want to be with this girl because it makes me the most popular guy. He does have really complicated feelings for for this girl over here who he's been with and they've broken up, and then you know this girl who's just kind of coming into his life. He is actually at points in this film in love with both of them legitimately. This is true because these characters are not the generic scene a billion times before teen party movie uh, characters we see in the movies with that structure that you're talking about. Yeah. Because this this guy, Miles Teller, he is not the nerd and he's not the jock. No. He's somewhere in between as the funny guy who everybody likes, but he's a but he gets away with it by being the big party guy. He's a wise ass. He's a, he's a wise ass. He's been partying his way through high school. He's mm -hmm. been dating the most popular girl in school, played by Brie Larson, of course, who's just gorgeous here. But when she decides it's time to grow up, like, look, I you're just a big kid, and I got to go to college. I got to go be serious, and you don't even want to ever leave this town. So she dumps him. He doesn't know what to do. He's never even pictured, like, life without his equal op equal. You know, her, they, the moment they met yeah. each other, they were a team and now he doesn't know what to do. Right. And he ends up getting drunk and sort of falling, literally falling asleep in the front yard of uh, Shailene, Shailene or Shailene? Uh, I believe I, it's Shailene. God, I interviewed her and I should know this. <laughs> she was, <laughs> really, she was super sweet. Dude. I tell you what, as long as you learn that before the next time you interview her, I think <laughs> exactly. you'll be fine. I'm just going to call you Shay Shay. <laughs> oh boy, don't do that. Shay Shay Woody. <laughs> oh goodness but gracious she's a nice girl a geek a serious student uh you know who never has even appeared on the radar of any of the popular kids you know not somebody who gets picked on so much but like they just don't you know she's she's sort of a non-entity yeah she's sort of a non-entity but he finds certain things about himself that he he finds in common with her including the fact that like he doesn't know what to do next and neither does she she'd like to go to college but she has a complicated relationship with her mom uh, her single mom who doesn't want her to leave and so as he's sort of it's he's not intentionally trying to take advantage of her but uh, but he's a kid and he's shallow and yeah. he is doing hurtful things without realizing he's doing hurtful things. Yeah. And it makes for this relationship where she sees this, but 
but still feels sorry for him and still wants to be with them and spend time with them. It's there's all these different levels emotionally going on with all the characters in this that make this really fascinating. To watch. And I, that's what I like most about the movies. They actually allow for the idea that maybe kids this age do have some complexity and do have more than one dimension. I think my favorite scene in the movie that illustrates this is the one where Marcus, who's the guy uh, that Brie Larson is dating now after Miles Teller gets sort of incensed by the fact that Miles Teller is still communicating with her and they're still, you know, they're still hanging out and he comes bursting into the place where Miles Teller works and it looks like he's going to just challenge him to a fight. But then he just kind of, he's like, he stops and he's just like, how do you make her laugh? Yeah. And it's just, it becomes such a really like complicated discussion and a really genuine discussion. And I was like, wow, in any other teen movie, they would have just fought. This is like almost, you, they would have they would have punched Miles Teller. They would have cut to him with a piece of meat on his eye. This is almost a deconstruction of these type of teen films. Hey, it's the Unforgiven <laughs> of these type of teen films. <laughs> so put that on the damn poster. It's a terrible thing to make a nerdy girl cry. It is indeed. <laughs> but I mean, that's what I like most about this movie is is there is such a an aspect of of genuine storytelling and genuine characters here. It doesn't feel like at any point they went for the easy choice. No, and that no. is of course epitomized in the fact that. Miles Teller does not have an easy choice in front of him. And he, as his character goes on, we really see him have to face up with just the grim realities of adulthood as personified by meeting his own long estranged father, who is a complete and utter wreck. Yeah. Uh, you know, him coming to himself, what am I going to do? I'm at that point. Am I, if I keep going the way I'm going to go, I will become him. <laughs> or, yeah, that'll, that'll sober you up real quick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Really fascinating film, extremely well acted. Another great turn by Shailene Woodley, who was so terrific in The Descendants. Mm -hmm. I believe she even got a nomination for that, didn't she? I, you know, I don't know. I think she got a Best Supporting nomination. We'll, we'll go with yes until we fact check it. Uh, but as well, you've got an audio commentary from the director here. There is a 21-minute making of the film and then 20 minutes of deleted scenes. A good package and really... You know, this makes a great accompanying piece to The Perks of Being a Wallflower, I'd sure. say, which was another recent film that also gave a very much more complex, in-depth look at this period of time and that sort of, so what now question that comes towards the end of high school. Indeed. And for the record, she was nominated for a Golden Globe. A Golden Globe. For Best Supporting for The Descendants. That's still pretty good. No, it's great. I just, I, I, we're doing our own fact checking so that you don't have to. So you don't have to yell at us in the comments. <laughs> definitely, definitely check out The Spectacular now. And from there, we're going to talk about, we're going to move a little bit, uh, just about 20 feet from The Spectacular now and talk about 20 feet from stardom. Uh, I see what you did there. See how that works? Yeah, uh, this is actually a lot further than that, probably. Maybe like 25 This feet. is a documentary, <laughs> not about teen problems. Oh, okay, well. <laughs> this is one of the films that's actually nominated for Best Documentary Film this year at the Oscars. And I was a little cynical because I admit this film that says, hey, it's a behind the scenes look at the backup singers through rock and roll history. What were their stories? My first take was... Who cares? <laughs> See, I know that's what they're trying to correct right there. That mentality. But here's the thing. This will grab you 10 minutes into it and just not let go. It is a really fascinating story following people like Darlene Love, who you probably know best uh, movie watchers as being Danny Glover's wife in the Lethal Weapon movies. Hell yeah. <laughs> Which I was wondering when they showed that scene. I was like, that's where I know her from. <laughs> she should have kept singing because she's terrible at cooking, according <laughs> to the Lethal Weapon movies. Uh, Judith Hill, Mary Clayton, Lisa Fisher, Tata Vega, Joe Laurie, and a lot more of these people who literally were, you know, the people who do the doo-wops, who sing in the background. I was kind of surprised they didn't have the woman from uh uh the great gig in the sky on dark side of the moon oh you know, yeah, yeah that amazing like you know just all instrumental 
the no worded vocal that that woman gets. Did they talk to the singers from Little Shop of Horrors? I they they might have been involved in this at some point. It's hard to say. There's a lot of people, but those the ones I listed are the main ones. And mm-hmm. as it goes through interviewing them, you really see. I mean, first off, you see how just like jaw dropping incredibly talented these women are like sure. oh my god like aretha franklin has nothing on these women <laughs> which they bring up her name in passing repeatedly too i think to kind of wink wink cement the point it's like compare and contrast for yourself <laughs> <laughs> they're all really really talented uh but you know you start to get frustrated because it builds up like all these women where it's like look at how great they are look at how especially shit bags like Phil Spector totally took advantage of some of these women during their careers in a way that was like so unbelievably scummy you don't believe it. Like yeah. wow, he was a total piece of shit even back then. Phil Spector, come on. <laughs> I mean, seemed like such a nice guy back then. He was a total piece of shit. Uh and you know, you want them to succeed on their own. They all have dreams of breaking free and succeeding on their own. And as you as this goes along which follows them over decades, you do, in fact, see that some of them did manage to break free. Like, one of them even won a Grammy one year, you know? None of them ever became, like, iconic to the degree of a lot of the guest stars that are in this film. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they get so many people in this. Uh, uh, Sheryl Crow, Mick Jagger, uh, David Bowie, uh, Bette Mittler, Bruce Springsteen's in it a lot because he's always been a big supporter of anybody else who's behind the scenes, apparently. <laughs> that includes you, little Stevie Van Zandt. Uh, Sting, Stevie Wonder. Uh, there's archival footage of them with Ray Charles, Luther Vandross, uh, Michael Jackson. It's you root for them to get to that level because they're all talented enough to be that popular. And it's kind of a tragedy in its own way watching this play out because, you know, going into it, you're like, I don't recognize any of these names. (laughs) You know, these are this is the story of people who didn't get what they deserve to get. But wow, is it just enchanting? These are just really funny, cool women. They're fun just to hear them talk. Yeah. And ultimately, at the end, you want to go buy their their solo albums that they put out. As as, as hidden and, and discarded as they were originally, you're still like, I, I got to hear these things. See, that I, I tend to find that the documentaries I like the most are about the music industry and the film industry because there's such an expansive history with all of these cast-off stories and all these hidden niche stories that – haven't seen the light of day or, you know, just told from a perspective you wouldn't expect. And yeah, I, I am really excited to see this one. Uh, one of the, there's two extra features on this. One of them is a look that gives like a more in-depth look at a lot of the people who really didn't get much screen time. Like a lot of the other singers out there who do this for a career are very good. Kind of gives them more of a voice. And there's one that's uh, the New York times apparently has a show. I didn't even know that, but a television show, Huh. but it's them interviewing the three main ladies from this who are so funny when they're together. I mean, they're like hysterical to watch them just play nice. off each other. Yeah. Really. I mean, it's one of those, like you're going to, you're going to want to see more of these women when it's done. So I do advise just clicking on those, taking it just that little bit uh, further. This is great. This is the probably, I mean, I, I'm still going to go with ultimately the best documentary I've seen this year is uh, the act of killing, the act of killing. Which is but, also nominated. But the most entertaining documentary I've seen this year is 20 Feet from Stone. Yeah, not a lot of laughs and good feelings with The Act of Killing. No, not so much. <laughs> well, all right. So we're going to move on from 20 Feet from Stardom to a film that, spoiler alert, is going to be my pick of the week. And that is the Criterion Collection release of Thief. Michael Mann's Thief from 1981. His first film. Yes, his first his first feature film. That is correct. Uh, holy crap. 
This is an amazing movie. I actually discovered this movie uh, a few months ago when it was still on Netflix and just happened to put it on and watch it. And I was I fell in love instantly. This is a film about a guy who is a career thief. He's a he's a burglar with a very specific uh, you know set of principles. I mean, he only goes after large sums of cash or diamonds. Based, That's it. Interestingly enough, based on a book by a guy that turned out to actually be when he wasn't writing books. A career jewel thief. Yeah. So there is a note of authenticity to this entire film because just because of where it came from. Although it's funny, you listen to Michael Mann talk in the special features because it's Criterion release. So there are a lot of great special features. Of course, there always are. Uh, but you listen to him talk and he talked about how much of the book he actually kind of threw out. But I think what he was really after was that sort of authenticity of the character that had to be at least somewhat semi-autobiographical uh, when you talk about the guy that wrote the book. Uh, so James Kahn plays this this thief who scores a major uh, you know this major diamond haul and while the guy who is going to fence it for him is on his way to get the money he gets thrown out of a window and suddenly that money ends up in the hands of a local sort of crime boss who there's like a misunderstanding he doesn't know that it's James Conn's money he ends up handing it back over but then it's like hey why don't we work together let's do some scores and of course James Conn is a fierce Fierce independent, does not want to be under anyone else's flag, wants to do everything on his own. And this movie is about what happens when he lets his guard down for just that long and breaks one of his own rules. Yeah, when he starts to see his dream, which is he keeps in his wallet, yeah. where he's made this little uh, collage of images of all the stuff that he wants his life to be, including uh, Tuesday Weld, who is mm. this hot hostess at a local coffee shop who he has decided is going to be his wife and have kids with him. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> See, that's one of the great things about this movie and a great uh, about James Conn's character is he is so no-nonsense that it gets to the point where he just skips all formality whatsoever. Like, he drags her into the car and it's like, let's just get on with this big romance already. And she's like... What? <laughs> yeah. And he's just like, no, we're going to be together. Let's just get on with this romance. There's this amazing, like, 10 minute sequence where he's got her in a coffee shop and is just talk, like, monologuing at her, where he basically convinces her of his truthiness. Yeah. His <laughs> truthiness. Situation, situation that's remarkable. And James Conn is regularly, even today, says it's his favorite scene in any movie he's ever been in. Yeah. Um, he talks about this being one of his favorite performances of any he's ever given. And there's, so. there's odd things about this, like James Belushi in an early, this may have been his first role, too. I'm not 100% on that but i think i know it's got to be pretty damn i know it was very early uh in his career he plays sort of his number one assistant and best friend uh and then there's lots of weird little like there's people in the background you'd be like wait is that yes it is uh most notably uh what's his name dennis farino dennis farino his first that is his first role yeah it is where he doesn't even get a single line of dialogue but he's a henchman who's there yeah it's similar to schwarzenegger in the long goodbye just playing a silent hitman or a silent henchman uh there's I, the thing about th this movie is that Khan is such a he's if you knew him in real life you'd probably hate him he's one of those guys that's his way or the highway and he will tell to you to the nth degree he will tell you flat out no go fuck yourself we're doing this the way I want to do it end yeah. of story but he also is one of those people that when you can trust him you can absolutely trust him he does what he says period uh, this plays into his relationship with his mentor and closest friend from prison named Okla played by Willie Nelson and a very brief part in the film but it helps to illustrate how there is a good and sweet and sensitive side to this guy yeah. like he's kind of his father figure here and he wants to do anything he can to help him uh you know the moment that frank agrees to take this mob connected job that there's no way this is going to play out the way it's supposed to. and what's interesting about this film is so many times we see movies about burglars about uh, about thieves where the thieves aren't necessarily tough guys. They're sort of the the guys who can maneuver a lot and the guys who avoid confrontation. James Conn in this film is 
a bully thief. Like he, there's a great line in the movie where he pulls a gun on a guy and says, I am the last guy in the world that you want to fuck with. And when he says that, and when James Conn says that to you, you believe it 100%. I can see James Conn actually just doing that in real life. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> when, when, Sonny in Cor- personality. when Sonny Corleone says, don't fuck with me, you don't fuck with him. No, no, you do not. Uh, no, you can't talk about this film with praise without mentioning both the incredible cinematography, which of course, if you like Michael Mann films, then you're highly aware of, of his the complexity of the shots that he manages to get the interplay of shadows and light and color mm-hmm. i mean he is just a master of the art of that stuff which is one of the reasons why i was so disappointed when he went to using all hd digital instead of film he was one of the directors who at most showed no dude you can't do that yeah. <laughs> you got to go back to doing using film it it doesn't work for you the other thing is tangerine dreams just incredible score love it this. Just wonderful. Like very if you like uh if you like the soundtrack to Blade Runner by Vangelis, it probably reminded me of more of than anything of that at points, but that's not uncommon for Michael Mann films in general. Uh this is a beautiful looking and sounding film, wonderfully acted. It's such a, a you know, even though it came out in nineteen eighty one, it's such a seventies crime film. It's it, it's 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 so gritty. I think I may have made this reference about another film, but it's so gritty it feels like there's actually dirt on the film as right? it's going through your Blu ray player. Uh it's just it's a great and classic movie, and certainly if you're a fan of Michael Mann, you, you owe it to yourself to check this out. You know, as you mentioned before, it's Criterion, which means it's got lots of extra stuff on it, including the original theatrical trailer, a very long interview with Michael Mann taking a look at this film, uh, a good interview with James Kahn, where he talks about uh, his collaboration with Mann on this, a interview, video interview with one of the guys from Tangerine Dream who talks about that, audio commentary with Michael Mann and James Kahn, uh, and then, of course, a booklet like they always put together. The only complaint I really have about this at all is that it's one of those rare occasions that I was like, why didn't you just use the original theatrical poster instead of the the, the version they made for this? I'll give you that because the, the poster for this film, the original theatrical one sheet, is pretty outstanding. It's, it has such a weird vibe to it. It's a gorgeous poster and really cool. Whereas the one they came up with this is just kind of bland. It is it is a bit bland. Uh, but, but overall, I think this is an incredible release. And this is a crime film that... I feel like even if people are into crime films, they might have overlooked. True. This might have been one that slipped through the cracks, and you definitely, definitely want to pick this up. And if you're going to see this movie, if you're going to buy a copy anyway, please buy the Criterion. It's yeah. far and away the best you well, can get. In fact, the, the previous edition of this isn't even anamorphic. Yeah, so there you go. you kind of have to buy the Criterion if you want to see this where it's not like pick, putting up a, a little box in the center of your screen. Uh uh, what else was I going to say about this? God damn it. I just had it on the tip of my tongue. Um, I don't know. Well, the, I, I will say that the the villain in this film, who is played by Robert Prosky, is absolutely phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Because he, he walks such a, a fine line between like this this like jovial paternal figure and like a guy that you just – you kind of love and he does all these favors for Frank and you're like, oh, what a great – and then like as soon as – as soon as Frank d- disagrees with the way that, you know, that this guy's running things, it gets dark really fast. And do, wow. Do you know what recent film this reminds me of more than anything else? What's that? It's Drive. Oh, sure. You know, if I think if you like Drive and that tone of the film and even the look of it, I'd be shocked to find out the Drive the director, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn, wasn't influenced by this. I, I would agree with that in- entirely. And if you are a fan of Drive, you just you further owe it to yourself to pick this up and check it out. It's It's one of my absolute favorite crime films. Right on. Well, that was Thief, and now we're going to steal away to a chorus line. Steal away to a chorus? There was no real. Yeah, what are you going to do? Let's just dance on over to a chorus line. Hey, hey, hey. Where they're kicking it. 
or oh, something. Boy. I don't know. Uh, cool. No, that's much better. You're right. <laughs> I, I, I never accused your pun transitions of being better. <laughs> this is the 1985 adaptation of the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, musical A Chorus Line, which was at the time a record-breaking Broadway hit. It was the longest continually running uh, play on Broadway. And still, I think now it's like the 16th. There's been quite a few since the, since then when this first came out. And it's directed by the uh, old crazy rich guy from Jurassic Park. It is, Richard Attenborough, who, you know, did in fact direct quite a few It's true. I just like saying time. it that way. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this was a really anticipated film when it came out in 1985. Uh, I actually saw this originally in in 85 because I had seen the, the musical on Broadway and just fell madly in love with it. It really is an incredible musical. And the film is kind of a disappointment, unfortunately. Really? And it's not uncommon. Let's face it. Most big musicals do not, in fact, translate that great to film. And even when they do... Let's face it, the original musical is usually a little bit better. And this is true for almost all of them. I mean, even Chicago is better to see on stage than it is to see the great movie. That better to see on with. stage in Chicago. Well, or wherever. You know. But mostly Chicago. <laughs> uh, the real problem with the A Chorus Line, the movie, is that Attenborough decided that it had to be more filmic, which is odd because the whole plot takes place basically on one stage, like a theater stage. So it's mm. like, what are you going to do to make this more filmic? Well, unfortunately, the stuff he does kind of just drags it down. Uh, but the story here is that it's a Broadway theater. It's audition for a new musical production being directed by a guy named Zach, uh, played here by Michael Douglas. Uh, and the, when you see this musical live, you never get really get to see the character. He's always just kind of a voice from the rafters that comes from the back of the stage. Here, one of the things like, well, we got Michael Douglas. I was going to say, you don't cast Michael <laughs> Douglas and then have him do a voice so, unless you're doing an animated film. They, they, as these characters are being weeded out one by one and they're getting smaller and smaller, the group of people who are the hopefuls to get roles in this, who are just the chorus for a musical. They're not even auditioning for the big roles. Uh, we learn more and more about each character through song as they sort of like the basically the director wants to get to know them. So he asks them, tell me honestly about yourself and your background. And they end up doing through through song and dance numbers, which are are on the whole very good, certainly much better in the original play, because Attenborough, for reasons that baffle me, decided to tinker with almost all the songs, even the really big, super popular ones, uh... like tinker with them a lot. Uh, even deleting completely several big songs from it. Uh, in one case, taking one of the most popular songs from it and changing what its meaning is completely. Yikes. Yeah. Like, wow, what the fuck were you thinking? And that's because he decides to focus on Michael Douglas, Michael Douglas's character and a former lead dancer, Cassie, played by Allison Reed, who apparently in the past was like this great hopeful. Like she was, as far as Michael Douglas was concerned, she was going to be, you know, the light up Broadway and be this big star. And they got a relationship together. And then she just suddenly left and so here she is suddenly coming back trying to audition for the chorus and he's furious not only because he hasn't heard from her for so long but also there's that thing like you're too good to be in the chorus you have no right to even be here mm -hmm. uh and that was an interesting but small part of the original play here they've dominated the story with it where there's lots of behind, backstage stuff with her and it just goes on and on you're like i don't care go back <laughs> to the people dancing <laughs> which is something you rarely hear a man say well, I've heard, yeah. Uh, now, there is a lot of good stuff in here. Make a mistake. Uh, a lot of the songs work really well. There's even a new song they added for this surprise, surprise that that's not in the original uh, play. That's really good and was nominated for an Oscar, in fact. But there's just if you're a fan of this play at all, there's a lot of disappointments and what they did change. It 
doesn't feel like it should have ever been shot as a film in the first place. Like I said, it all takes place on stage, on one stage. You kind of got to see it <laughs> in a theater to get the effect of the whole thing. And the original version is very emotionally affecting, going through these people's lives and all the dark shit that happened to them that led them to this point, their hopes and their dreams, seeing some of them dashed and quite horribly for some of them along the way, and some of them succeed. But as a movie, it just kind of falls flat. Hmm. That's unfortunate. I was actually just sitting here realizing I probably should have done this review right after 20 Feet from Stardom. Yeah. Well, mm. well. Next time. Next time. Next time, Gadget. Anyway, we're going to move on from there to Pride and Prejudice. Oh, Mr. Darcy. As long as we're doing girly films. Yeah. I'll tell you that this is a girly film that I totally became a big girl for. That's adorable. I, like, when I was in high school, they made me read Jane Austen, just like they do everybody. You got to read, they'll give you a list of stuff. Like, uh, every high school has a list of stuff, and they, of like, that's the same at every high school in the world. And you randomly, depending on what your teacher's favorite is, gets one of these maybe 15 books to read. And this yeah. was one of the ones I had to read, and very reluctantly, I don't want to read this fucking drawing room bullshit. <laughs> and I loved it. I thought it was like, wow, this is so well written it's so funny it's just it's really charming and i hadn't really thought about it for years and, until they put out pride prejudice and zombies sure yeah <laughs> that's when everybody started to get a resurgence of interest in jane austen well honestly this actually this six episode 1995 british television drama which is this is not the movie that was done with um what's her Keira knightley Keira knightley who's in every movie like this but uh, this came out in 1995 on the BBC and was one of the biggest hits in British television history. I mean, like a monster, they were going, a monster hit that even they were going, what the fuck is happening? Like they did not know what to do. People were mobbing these actors when they came out of nowhere. These actors who were nobody at the time, you know, the, like they just loved it. It was one of the best-selling VHS uh things that ever came out in Britain at the time. They were like, I mean, they couldn't keep it in stock, yeah. which is weird considering they regularly aired it on television. So it was like, you could just get it for free, but people wanted to buy it anyway. Colin Firth, popular in a film where he doesn't wear a sweater? Well, Colin Firth, this is the movie that made him. Okay, I mean, or not movie, but miniseries. This is where he got his name, and you can see why. He is super intense and broody and really good-looking, playing uh, Mr. Darcy. Mr. Darcy! Uh, the douchiest love interest in any film ever. <laughs> He's kind of a cock, yeah. Which is really the point. Uh, yeah. The idea here is that it's a small, not even small family, it's a big family of girls uh, who, even though they constantly play, oh, we don't have that much money, they live in the biggest house I've ever seen until later you get to see Mr. Darcy's house. <laughs> you're like, oh, yeah, you're so poor in your giant fucking mansion and expensive grounds. Yeah. But, you know, it wouldn't be as romantic if they lived in a hut. <laughs> uh, the the mother who is like the only thing I could even talk about this badly at all is that she's playing it so much for comedy being not that bright and constantly getting trying to get her daughters married and being irritating about it that you, it kind of brings you out of the story she's yeah, playing you shouldn't so be broad. siding with the like snooty British people like oh what an unbearable woman you shouldn't be going I know right but she is unbearable but so. she totally is <laughs> but her family to their credit is like they're still she's still their mom and they're always like oh mom that kind of reaction whereas right. the dad's more of a sort of like i don't know why i put up with this long, i'm just gonna disconnect from all of you long suffering guys like you know what i'm gonna go into my study and i'm gonna pour myself some whiskey and you guys need to fuck off <laughs> that's kind of his take on most things uh now the only the two oldest daughters here seem to be really have anything going for them uh, uh elizabeth the, and jane yeah elizabeth and jane uh and um uh the the oldest daughter is uh i guess that's a, a lizzie yeah 
I think the oldest daughter is actually Jane. Is it Jane? Yeah. I, why can I not? Or at least that's the one that they keep. They they first put out there as like, this is the daughter you should marry. Right, right, right. Uh, she is the most marriageable. She's daughter, the, obviously the smartest one. She's got this sort of like, you know, it doesn't really matter what happens to me, whether or not I get married, as long as I stay happy and see my family be happy. She's the one you immediately identify with and like. Even though when she meets uh, Mr. Darcy, played by Colin Firth, who is immediately just the most, just the worst kind of English prick. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, you know what? Fuck that guy who strangely, even though he's just talked about loudly how she's not that good looking and how, you know, why would anybody waste their time with these not rich folks can't stop staring at her. <laughs> yeah. No, it's clear he's full of shit. As the story goes on, you see him. It's it's kind of the redemption of Mr. Darcy is really what the story is about. As like through the length of the story, we see the other daughters get involved in different types of relationships, uh, different complications involving lots of misinformation about Mr. Darcy that's not actually true, and some that that is, but he's willing to own up to. As we watch him sort of learn what it means to be a human being, and gradually, even though early on he tells. You know, Jane's like, I love you so much. I'm sorry. I love you. I love you. Uh, and she's like, are you fucking crazy? <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you? Get the fuck away from me. We see her eventually falling in love with him as well. She starts to learn the truth of who this man actually is and why he is the way he is. And quite honestly, it's actually pretty touching and yeah. funny and really well acted. And I'll be damned if I didn't want to nuzzle at, at Colin Firth a bit myself when this was all over. <laughs> I was like, what have you done? Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> no, no, bad. I, I think, not to confuse folks, I think we've been saying Jane and Darcy. We're, it, it's, it's Elizabeth. Elizabeth. It's Elizabeth. It's Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy that ultimately is the love story at the heart of Pride and Prejudice. I don't – for me, like, I couldn't get past the drawing room stuff. And I know they actually went to great lengths to try and make this adaptation a little less stuffy than the adaptations before it's it. It's got a little more comedy in it. It does. And the, I appreciated the comedy. I appreciated the, the repartee between Colin Firth and Jennifer uh, L., I believe is how you pronounce yeah, her last who's name. strangely, even though he became a big star, she just kind of went to theater after this. Yeah. She was like, no, nah, I just want to do more serious stuff. I, I really liked the back and forth between the two of them. And I, I, I had a completely different – sort of view of Mr. Darcy. And I don't know if it's because I haven't read the book, but what it seemed like to me in, in this film is that he is almost the the sounding board by which Jane Austen is sort of judging this entire culture of absolutely. the aristocracy. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because as snooty as he is, the things he's saying are like, I really find these 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 over these over garish pageants that country people put on to be such a bore. And I'm sitting there going, I fucking agree with you, dude. I am right there with you. And it's just sort of Jane Austen's way to 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 pick at at the uh, the sort of Victorian aristocracy. So I appreciated that about it. But overall, I just I, I couldn't get over how how dull I found everything. And that's and that, and that is entirely because this kind of thing is just not my usual fare. It either appeals to you or it doesn't. I admit yeah. that the turning point for me was Oscar Wilde stuff, which mm. is also very drawing room, but it's just so goddamn laugh out. Oh, I love funny. the importance of being earnest for sure. Right. Yeah. That's the classic. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I mean, you love it because it's full of puns just like I do. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's Oscar Wilde. Of course it's full of puns. Uh, and this is definitely not that type of thing. No, at all. but, and I get it. It is very drawing room, yeah. but I found myself really, getting into it in these characters um and it didn't hurt that i already was familiar with the story i think it was just like i said the two leads are so good in this they really are uh, that it drew me back into it that i was rooting for them as well as being able to see as you said that there's this subtext of a scathing attack on the mores and the caste system of the time mm -hmm. it's actually quite funny when you think about that you know that had to be one of the things that was scandalizing people when this even came out sure 
And you know what? As as much as this isn't my thing, I really looked for to you know looked for things to appreciate about it. And I, like I said, the relationship between Colin Firth and Jennifer L. Uh, some of the, the, the humor in it, especially from the dad, I thought that the dad was really funny for as disconnected as he was, Mr. Bennett. Um, but overall I just found it like I do most, you know, drawing room romances, which is, felt like I was eating a rice cake as fast as I could. It was that, (laughs) it was that dry, you know, I was just like, oh, that's, that's not for me. That's awesome. (laughs) But that, you know. Another rice cake eating drama from the BBC. Yep. And I would say that people like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's like, try to eat a rice cake as fast as you can. That's a lot like watching one of these romances. Uh, and this is like an anniversary edition, so they've added a bunch of bonus features on here. Like I said, there are people who are just devotees to the series who watch it over and over and over again. So, well, this will be a great release for them. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a 21-minute uh, definitive Pride and Prejudice uh, featurette on the history of the miniseries and the original novel. Uh, there's uh, there a bunch of little featurettes that take a look at different aspects of this world and of the making of this, some of which were on the previous DVD. Quite a few of which are new and unique to this. So for big fans, they actually put together a nice little anniversary uh, collection for them. Chris takes pride in having known the source material, and I am admittedly a little prejudiced, but we <laughs> find ourselves split on it. But I am, I'm I'm positive that there are people out there that are really going to enjoy this Blu-ray. I think if you, if you know that you are one of those people who do like sometimes these kind of drawing room romance type things, this is going to blow you away. And if you know you're sure. not, you're probably going to yawn through it. So. Or eat rice cakes. Yeah, or eat rice cakes. Whatever. So, I, I like rice cakes, but then again, I smear them with peanut butter. See, butter, that's so. the thing, is if yeah. you just eat them plain, like, ugh. Yeah. Anyway, I have a story <laughs> about that. Anyway, uh, so we're going to move on from Pride and Prejudice to plus one. Oh, you mean me? Yeah, I don't know what this is. <laughs> oh, sorry. This is. I'm actually surprised that you did you know you don't get IFC stuff, do you? Not usually. Uh, see, that's a shame because this is one of those I would have been really curious to hear what you think about this. This is a thriller slash horror slash teen party movie. In mm. no way that those things usually go together. Okay. <laughs> um, more, it's it's like there's lots of little aspects of other films in here. Everything from American Pie to Donnie Darko. I saw a trailer for this and movie. Went, what the hell is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea here is these three friends. They decide to to go to this huge party. Uh, one of which you're going to recognize Reese Wakefield if you saw The Purge, who played the leader of the bad guys. He was that. actually really good. No matter what you might think of the purge itself i thought that guy was really good he's very it. intense and creepy yeah. and here he's just argue in a normal film he would just be playing the nice guy hero because he's showing up to this huge party like you know and which is every i mean it's it's you know it's project x it's every crazy fucking unrealistically gigantic party you've ever seen in one of these movies that you probably still would want to go to if you were in high school Lots, <laughs> every person there is unbelievably gorgeous or handsome you know what high school is this fuck (laughs) Uh, not beverly hills 90210 but he's going there because his girlfriend who he loves very much there was a mix-up where he went to visit her at college and she he thought it was her drinking water from a fountain and he went went up behind her and it wasn't her it was this girl who was like her rival and and fencing was uh-oh her thing and so the girl turned around and was like immediately planted a kiss on him because i guess she's a bitch or something i don't know we never see any more of her after that but of course that at that exact moment his girlfriend turns the corner and sees if i have learned one thing in my experience about teenage girls it's that they take no rivalry more seriously than their fencing rivalry that's, that's the big one yeah. That's it, man. Yeah, Don't... just taking a stab at it, but I'd say that that's the one. Yeah. Touche. Yeah. 
Anyway. Uh, so he's going to this party because he knows she's going to be there and he's got to make one last try to get back with her. Okay. We've seen a lot of movies like this. And to afford that sort of thing, it's fun enough. It's got this, his, one of his friends who's the crazy, like nerdy, but like, I don't care party kid who's just like the funny guy, you know, who's, who nobody really respects, but they reluctantly let into their circles. Mm-hmm. And then the other girl who is the, you know, slight long red haired girl who we're convinced people think is ugly, even though she's really gorgeous, kind of looks like the redheaded from girl from uh, uh, Six Feet Under. Oh, right on. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're like, okay, not convincing. But you know, like I said, I guess in this world where everybody looks like a supermodel, she's probably a hideous cave troll. <laughs> <laughs> uh so, you know, yeah, you're going to sub like, all right, so it's everything you want to see. It's a bunch of naked people. It's a bunch of people doing studio, stupid party stuff until it gets to the point where he manages to corner his gr- this girl and he fucks it up completely. He's like, tries everything he can. Everything he says comes out wrong. And she leaves even more angry than she was before. And then something happens. As we saw early in the film, a meteor has come down and struck the earth and is starting to send weird blue light up into the phone lines. And we see bits and pieces of this from the outside, especially from some redneck drug dealer guy who's just hanging out outside pissed off because the guy who he sold the drugs to, the guy throwing the party, won't let him in his own party. Yes, but then Jim Caviezel can talk to his own father. No, no, that's different. No? No. Okay. Uh and eventually this the electricity stuff comes to the party right at the moment that a bunch of different things are happening to the main characters, including the party kid getting it on with, like, the hottest girl at the party somehow. Don't ask me how. Uh, well, when a man and woman love each other very much. Uh, <laughs> oh, you didn't mean how, is no. it? Okay, I gotcha, I gotcha. And it's like reality takes a picture of the party, except from, like, 30 minutes beforehand, and suddenly has that take place again. Like, it's like everybody has doubled. Everything that happened exactly 30 minutes ago is happening at the same time that everything else is going on. Now, the whole party has moved outside to some shit going on. So suddenly, those doubles of all those people are in the house doing exactly what they were doing 30 minutes ago, including doubles of all our lead characters. In Blu-ray terms, we call this a chapter skip. (laughs) Uh, No one is more shocked by this than the guy who is having sex with the hot girl in the bed, only to, when she goes into the shower, suddenly looks over and she's lying naked on the bed next to him going, okay, so are we going to do this? He's like, damn woman. I know the first thing I'd think was... (laughs) You damn right we are, <laughs> but I've got to throw something a little different into the mix. Uh, <laughs> what's odd about this is that this could have gone two ways, uh, and neither one of which is the way they went. <laughs> one of which is to turn it into a flat-out horror movie, right? Mm-hmm. To make it where all these people have evil intentions and there's some darkness involved, and you know, yada yada. The other way is to just make it into an uproarious teen comedy, the way it looked like it was going anyway. These. Try and go in a way, this movie tries to take it in a way that doesn't necessarily work, but it's so consistently surprising the choices they make. I can't say I wasn't entertained anyway. Mm. Uh, for instance, the lead character, Reese Wakefield, who they're really selling you as the nice guy who's just got to do the right thing to get this girl back, is willing to do anything, including fuck over other people and even kill to manipulate this reality to who this other girl version of this girl 30 minutes earlier they never had that conversation where he totally fucked up and now he knows the right things to say. Hmm. <laughs> and like everybody has this weird t- different take on things. Um, some of which are extremely disturbing. Some of which are very funny. Ultimately plus one is a very interesting film that doesn't quite get where you'd hope it would, but you can't blame it for trying really hard to stand out from the rest of the crowd. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a couple of different things. One is, you know, it's funny. We mentioned Groundhog Day at the beginning of the show. This is like a microcosm of Groundhog Day because you only go back 30 minutes. 
And then there's a movie that's actually coming out. Uh, it's going to be released theatrically called Welcome to Tomorrow. Yeah, I just saw the trailer for that. And yeah, as weird. you're describing this movie, I'm thinking about the trailer for that one and like, hmm, that's well, interesting. This is different because like I said, they're not actually time traveling. Mm-hmm. It's like I said, the snapshot of 30 minutes ago and everyone in it appears simultaneously existing in the same place and time as everyone caught up to current time. So eventually and the room's going to be full of 30 different versions of these people. Well, the problem is like the only people who are aware this is happening at all initially are the main three characters who are all having their own take on what it means and what they should do about it. Uh, you know, all pretty selfish in their own way about what to do about it. Whereas they're also worried what's going to happen when everybody else figures out what's going on as well. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check this. I remember seeing the trailer for it and thinking that looks weird. It is weird. (laughs) I will hand you that. It is weird, but it, it does definitely this, uh, director, uh, writer, Dennis, uh, Elatus and Bill Gulo. I will be looking into whatever they do next. Cause this was an interesting little mix of genres. It certainly did not do a lot of things that would you would normally expect a movie like this to do, other than showing lots of really incredibly hot girls naked, which I know is, you know, never a bad thing necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> Way to be above board. Uh, <laughs> we're going to go ahead and move on to a film called Wolverine vs. Sabretooth. Now, this is the latest uh, animated comic from Shout Factory and their Marvel Knights releasing wing. Yeah, I don't know if I'd call it a film yeah <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a comic book where that moves hey look it's moving well i mean even more so it's like it's done episodically in little 11 minute episodes and these things they keep putting them out as if they've aired somewhere yeah i they haven't are they airing somewhere i mean Not even to aware. the extent of having sequences replay bits that happened in the pre end of the previous sequence yeah. and i'm like as if it's like last week on whatever this is why is this happening but Wolverine versus Sabretooth. All right, so I'll say this. Most of the comics they've chosen to adapt for these things from Shout Factory have actually been originally pretty good comics. The first one I've ever outright said, wow, I fucking hate this, was the last one, Ultimate Wolverine versus Ultimate Hulk. Yeah, that was pretty dumb. Which yeah, was really dumb. Uh, this one I went into very ready to hate it because it's written by Jeff Loeb, who is not a guy I'm a big fan of. Yeah, it seems speaking. like, you know, it's it, looking at it from an outsider's perspective, it seems like Loeb gets a lot of hate from the, the hardcore comic literati. Yeah, it's like, it seems like the more casual and younger fans love the shit out of him, but like, like the old fogies like me can't stand him. <laughs> well, I mean, he's, the guy is still writing a lot of uh, goodwill from me because one of the first graphic novels I ever read was The Long Halloween. Sure, which is one of the better things he did. And I fucking love that book. Yeah, well, so. part of that's because that artwork is so phenomenal. Yeah, Tim Sale. Uh, mm-hmm. He tends to work with a lot of really good people. Tim Sale, Jim Lee, people like that. Now, I have not read the original uh, Wolverine Origins comic book series that this was, uh, this was taken from, but suffice it to say, this is... I mean, it's just plucked right from the middle of the incredibly complex and never-ending Wolverine retconning and complex and what the fuck is actually happening now storyline. And I feel like if I didn't, wasn't familiar with it, I mean, you can't, you can't go into this cold. You can't go into this knowing nothing about Wolverine or his past or things like that. This will, this does not make any allowances for people who aren't hyper familiar with the world. I can, I can attest to that because I knew Japan. Yeah. And that was about it and you were like, in terms of his past. You were like, what the fuck is going on in this movie? Yeah, kind of. I, I knew enough <laughs> to follow it, but even I had to keep pausing it and checking Wikipedia. <laughs> Wait <laughs> a minute. Uh, okay, yeah. Right. Sabretooth, of course, is Wolverine's longtime nemesis because they're very similar. He doesn't actually have long claws, metal claws, but he has very sharp almost unbreakable. But they're both very animalistic yeah, superheroes. They're very, very similar, except mutants. one's always traditionally been a bad guy and one's always traditionally been a good guy. Then mm. this plays it up like it's the ultimate final showdown between Wolverine and Sabretooth, which, by the way, 
It's totally not. <laughs> I was going to say, I wish somebody would have told them that because every five minutes looked like it was going to be the ultimate showdown. It was like, oh, no, there's another one. Oh, okay, they're fighting again. And I think that's the biggest frustrating thing about this is like it keeps going back to this fight that neither one of them can win. So what's the point of continuing to watch it? And then throwing in so much dense background stuff that after a while you just kind of get a headache watching it especially knowing if you keep reading on wikipedia that almost all this is meaningless like a year later you know it's like these the wolverine story is one of the it's just turned into one of the lamest in comics for me because they just never stop going you know everything you thought you knew well it turns out all that wasn't real i mean they've gone so far as to say that like stuff what like all the weapon x stuff they were doing years ago like all these memories he recovered that those were intentionally staged for him with actors to have those memories. See, it's it's like <laughs> it's like Hero Canon is becoming like Apple products. It's like, oh, you thought was obsolete. Here's the new one. And this is so endemic of that. And it's very typical of Jeff Loeb, who writes what what I call dr- like a comic drama porn really where it's just like he just does these huge events and somebody major always dies not like it matters because they usually come back to life a few months later nobody's really dead in comics all of this stuff it just lacks any real emotional punch it's all just like everybody's very serious about whatever's happening at this exact moment oh my god the trauma the tragedy and you know, who gives a shit? <laughs> it's not even a real story. This is like a, a tiny chapter out of like a much bigger story. I mean, it, uh, I genuinely enjoyed Wolverine uh, uh, Origin, which they put out a, a couple months ago, mm-hmm. which is a very simple story about like that was the first time told of like literally young Wolverine growing up and what happened to him. And I actually really liked that. This is just all over the place. And if you want something, if you're really familiar with this stuff, and you want something more chaotic and violent and just, just nonstop. Oh, look, here's that person you recognize. Here's that person you recognize. Like cameos by everybody you can imagine. Sure. Go ahead. It's not like it's terrible. It's just, it's just like a fireworks display. It's just kind of, there's not much depth to it. You've seen it. You've seen it a billion times before. It's pretty to look at, but that's about it. Watching this, I could only keep thinking that even if I were Wolverine and had his powers, my interest would never regenerate past about episode four. I was just like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm out. I can't, I can't follow this shit anymore. If I was Logan, I would totally, you know, it'd be like enough, enough is enough already. When it comes time to renegotiate his contract, I would make sure there's a new clause in there. That pun is going to make people go berserk, you realize, right? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and we're t- we're, we wait just a second to make sure that we've actually finished with the puns and then we move on. So yeah, that is Wolverine versus Sabretooth. It seems like a real dramatic comic, but there's not a lot of bite to it. That's so, a thing that exists. It's a thing that exists. So we're going to move on to a single shot. Just one shot. Ba bam. Or I, just ba. I think you and I both know there's never just one shot. Ever. <laughs> Ever. It's shots. Yes. But in not. succession, one after another. One line after them up another. right here. Yep, make sure to tap it on the table first. That's to yeah. the house. Like Nick and Nora Charles, just line that shit up in front of me. This is the indie drama this year that I was, when I saw the trailer, I was so convinced this was going to be a big, huge Oscar, Oscar time film. And there's so many aspects of this that feel like it's so close to being a really good film. Mm-hmm. And yet, ultimately, it just kind of felt a little dry. It's a shame because one of my favorite actors in the world, Sam Rockwell, is the lead here of the story. Uh, it's, it's certainly, there's a lot lately of this sort of fetishization. Maybe that's not even the right term, but of 
redneck culture of that sort of like these, especially Southern Gothic crime drama stuff is very big right now. And I love a lot of it. Like the new show, True Detective on HBO, which is very Southern Gothic stuff is just blowing me away. Um, but uh, maybe it's just that there's just not enough happening here. Story or follow Sam Rockwell's John Moon who's a very simple backwoods living in a trailer middle of nowhere redneck total poverty living in upstate new york that's getting by by poaching and he's stalking a deer and he accidentally shoots a girl in the woods shoots her and kills her like before he you know can say anything he's like fuck this oh fuck i'm not even supposed to be here but then he finds a box in her stuff with a hundred thousand dollars in the abandoned van where she was hiding which puts a whole new spin on the situation well that's interesting so of course he does as you do you take the money and you hide it and then you pretend that you never saw shit. Which always leads to good things. Well, unfortunately... No consequences ever. As it turns out, of course, someone knows because he starts getting phone calls and then rocks through his window. What? And it gets even worse for him because he just wants to hook back up with his ex-wife who had just left him recently. Who he really, really just wants to... I mean, he's really trying to be a nice guy. He's really like, really... Is it Kelly Riley doing an excellent job playing her? Saying, I just want to be with you and my kid. I know I fucked up. I'm willing to do anything. But this is a guy who's been fucking up for so long. It's like, look, man, it's too late. Uh, even his lawyer played here by uh, William H. Macy is telling him, look, man, just fucking sign the divorce papers already. As this goes on, though, we start seeing there's, of course, a lot more happening here than anybody thinks there than you could ever imagine even plausibly could be. And that is, it appears practically everybody in this town in some way is tied into whatever was going on with that girl and the money. And ultimately, I think that's the failing point of this film, is that there's just not enough depth given to all these other characters, especially Jeffrey Wright, who should be phenomenal in this, is mm -hmm. a redneck even more pathetic than Sam Rockwell is here, his like best friend. There's just not enough depth. There's not enough about them that's interesting to believe that all these people could plausibly be part of this complex, relatively complex situation that's going here. You, it just kind of takes you out of it. Mm -hmm. um, I the, the best thing about it is Rockwell, who, as always, commands the screen. He's so good here. Uh, but he can't carry a movie with this much baggage around all by himself. And that's what this film kind of leaves him to do, sadly. Uh, that's too bad. I really like Jeffrey Wright. That's that's a shame to hear. Oh, me too. I mean, I really like William H. Macy. And Ted Levine has a small role in here as well. Uh, Ophelia Lovabond. A lot of people who, like I've seen in other stuff and thought were really good. Huh. Here are, you know, they're here. Jason Isaacs, who I haven't seen in forever, has a role in here that's interesting. It's not like anybody's bad. They're not. Everybody's just fine. They're just not given enough to do to carry the weight of the of the story. And ultimately, nothing really happens with the story until we start getting in the last 30 minutes. So, I don't know. Uh, interesting, but a, a swing and a miss. Should people give it perhaps a single shot before they completely write it off? You know, I think for some people will like this a lot more than others. Um, certainly, if you know, like if you like, uh, what was the Jennifer Lawrence, the big one that she... Oh, uh, uh, Winter's Bone. Winter's Bone. If like mm -hmm. Winter's Bone was like your favorite movie that year, this is a movie trying to grab onto that same, like, you know, that same demographic, really, of people who really like that. And it's nowhere near as good as Winter's Bone, but which is not, once again, not to say it's a bad movie. It's just not quite all there. But those people might indeed get something out of it. I didn't feel like I wasted my time watching it. It was interesting. There's some surprises in it. There's some good stuff in Rockwell, as always, like I said, just absolutely incredible here. But there just should have been more. Gotcha. Yep. Well, I will definitely... uh 
give that a single. I already made that joke, yeah, so I'm going to move on. Yeah, move on. We're going to move on to the next stop here, which is Fruitvale Station. End of the line, everybody off. Time to die. Time to die. <laughs> uh, this is a really a sad story, and unfortunately, there's not really a way to... I, I kind of went back and forth on exactly how to approach this review, because on the one hand... You can't really talk about what this movie's about without telling you how it ends. No. On the other hand, it is based on a real event that actually happened. But I'm not I'm not usually the kind of person that likes to use that as a crutch for spoiling things anyway, because it's not something that is necessarily widely known. It's not maybe something unless you really follow the news. Doesn't it start with it though? It well, I mean it, it it's building toward, you know what I mean? It's it's building toward like, you don't know what actually happened, but you know something We're happened. following this guy through what is essentially, and I'm just, I'm going to go ahead and say it, so if you're if you're at all skittish about spoilers, just don't listen to me, but it's it's following a guy in the last day of his life. Everything about this film is working. I mean, this is the, uh, based on the story of Oscar Grant III, who was, um, he lived in the Bay Area, and he was murdered by police, or he was killed by police, of course, like, Anyway, we'll get into that in a second. But essentially what this movie is, is it's it's sort of a self-eulogy. It's it's about a guy who wakes up one day and just feels weird, like feels like something is off and feels like he needs to start doing a lot of the things he's been putting off. And then what we realize is that it's it's good that he does these things because by the end, you know, he meets this this tragic end. And um, I think a lot of the criticism for this movie, you know, there was – I mean it was it was very well received by a lot of different critics. Oh, sure. But I think some of the criticism came from the fact – that it might it might have been uh, heroicizing this guy a little bit too much to the point that it's actually making him a saint. Like he's literally going around and doing good deeds knowing that he's going to die, which is a little bit of a stretch. But at the same time, I don't know enough about this guy or the story of the actual true events around this story to make a judgment on that one way or the other. Well, I mean, yes. Well, that's that's all. That's very true. I will say that regardless of the facts of the story, this movie to me, and I think most people who saw this knowing what the ending is ahead of time, because it's a real life story, felt that they could see the strings that were being pulled for the emotional levers on mm-hmm. this to go, look, you know, every time he does something nice or thoughtful or goes, I'm turning my life around. You're like, Oh, oh, it's definitely it's, punch in the heart all the way through. It's and, definitely emotionally manipulative. I'm, I, I will not argue that at all. But, but that being said, that being said, uh, Michael B. Jordan is fucking phenomenal. Yeah, it's a breakout role. role for him. No Absolutely. Question. Without a doubt. Uh, he gets while the script might be a little manipulative or may, I'd probably say even more so than just the way it's directed. I would say Jordan transcends all of that and makes this guy seem like a real and in-depth character uh as well as octavia spencer who's also wonderful in here as his mother mm-hmm. she's the, their relationship is one of the most interesting things in the film actually uh there's lots of nice little touches throughout this though as well i there's a whole thing that has to do with one of the cops playing played by kevin durand that actually humanizes the police officers that was what were even involved that was an unexpected and kind of i thought cool touch to it towards the end although i'm sure when martin watched it he's like i don't care fuck those cops <laughs> martin does not care for police he's officers he's not a big fan of police officers in general <laughs> and there's no way not to feel emotionally affected by this i mean it is you know a truish story you know a guy named Oscar Grant was 22 years old on his way home from partying and uh, got killed by the police. That sucks for, for doing nothing pretty yeah. much as was caught by um, bystanders cell phones, which of course we actually get to see the real footage. Yeah. That makes me super uncomfortable, but I, I completely, I, it needs to be there. It absolutely does. But it's just one of those things that like, I'm not a big like faces of death guy. Like I don't, I don't, 
like seeing that shit. No, no, I, I'm always one of those like, oh man, that's awesome. Look at that gory scene. That was so cool. Hey man, you want to watch a? You want to see my my paper cut? Oh no, no God, don't that. show that to it's me. It's real. Oh, no, what are you crazy? Are you crazy, get that away from me. You're trying to make me throw up. Uh, yeah, like I said, this is it's better. It, it's a good film, but I think that if people got. I felt like people got a little overexcited about it, and I, I felt like some people were so angered by the the movie that they saw just saw right past all those strings that I couldn't help but see that were there the whole time. I felt manipulated by it. And so I had trouble enjoying it as much as some, but there's no denying that Michael B. Jordan turns in this just fucking top notch performance. He's obviously going to go a long way. Now, uh, you know, it's curious in the extras, there's one called Fruitvale Station, the story of Oscar Grant. You'd assume this is going to be a, a real based on news reports type story. Nope. It's just a making of featurette. Sorry. Whoops. <laughs> yep. Uh, there's a Q and a with the filmmakers and cast following a screening in Oakland, California. Uh, and that's about it. Now you would expect a lot more with this actually, but maybe the reason there's not more of a sort of like, let's talk to the real life friends and family of Oscar Grant is because you'd go, Oh wait, he really wasn't as great as this movie makes him seem. <laughs> maybe he was, I don't know. Maybe he was, I really don't know, but you know, I don't know. It all, it, it's almost to the point of like, you know, I felt like at points this movie is going to say, man, in only three more days till retirement. And I was just about to get engaged and <laughs> Right. No, it, and it's funny, like this movie, you know, I'm looking back at it, I realized this actually won the Austin Film Critics Award for best first movie uh, for, for Coogan. Yeah. Uh, is that, is, am I saying that right? Is that his uh, last I name? I don't know. Coogler. <laughs> Coogler. Ryan Coogler. Ryan Coogler. But I actually, you know, I think you're right. I think the big misstep of the movie is actually the direction. Yeah. And, and is actually sort of maybe even, maybe even going a little further and saying the writing and the, and the spe- specific way that the beats are plotted to get that maximum emotional effect out of a story that should inherent, inherently be emotional enough. Yeah. Should have everything just baked in to, to really pull the human experience out of you that I don't even necessarily need, need – I don't think you need to go to such great lengths to manipulate the audience. Like the story should do that on its own. Yeah. It's, it should be a story of a guy that's uh, not just profound because we know he's going to die. Right. Yeah. Well, that was Fruit Vale Station, and that is actually going to bring us to our last title of the show, which is also our <gasps> giveaway. And that is Riddick. Riddick, 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 Riddick. We're not actually giving away Riddick. We're giving away the film called Riddick. I know some of you girls got excited there for a minute. <laughs> yes, but... all of you, all of you major Gru fans out there that were really just hoping to get a hold of Vin Diesel. Uh, I guess he's popular from that other franchise. What's it? The, the Fast, Fast and the Furious? I don't know. I mean, I know a lot of Pitch Black fans. I mean, we all disliked the second one, I think, across the board, the Chronicles of Riddick. But yeah. come on, who doesn't like Pitch Black? I like when they combine Pitch Black and his auto racing franchise, and it's the Fast and the Furious. That's really my favorite nice. movie. Boy, we're just going to hit every possible Fast and the Furious pun based on movies. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. And we, I mean, we can shift gears away from that if you oh, want. Oh, but... see. <laughs> I know how furious you I get when we do that. I slash hate you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is once again directed by David Twoey, who made the first two films, uh, Pitch Black and Chronicles of Riddick, in 2000 and 2004. Now, I'm as surprised as anybody that they made a third film. Yeah, because, no idea why. Because Chronicles of Riddick was a, was a bomb. Super you bomb. Know, and, and it deserved to be. It, was, it had some fun stuff in it, but man, did it have a lot of missteps. Fortunately, Riddick goes back to a simpler idea of – more of the simpler ideas of Pitch Black. It pulls things way back as we see – uh, Riddick, as played by Vin Diesel, 
pretty much just bored with being King Conan in outer space <laughs> and uh, deciding that he wants to go find his home planet of uh, Furia, I think it's called. Yeah. Furia. Uh, and he's manipulated by uh, Carl Urban, who's sort of his number one, and tricked into being brought to another planet that's sort of like a, a basically a death planet, a place you take people when you want them to die yeah. and where he is left for dead. It makes Tatooine look like a beach resort. And what you get out of this is actually kind of three movies. Movies. The first movie is uh, Call of the Wild with Riddick. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it, and it, that's actually my favorite of the three. Films. Right down to the fact that he has an alien puppy that he raises he and is like his, his companion. And I really enjoyed that, actually. I was like, this is fun. You're watching him explore all the aspects of this planet. We're learning about the weird monsters and weather patterns and weird shit on this planet. And watching him be just the kind of Riddick badass that when he's at his best, you know, him like just figuring out how to MacGyver shit and you crossed with his like ultimate nothing can stop me tough guyness. I really enjoyed that. But then he discovers a place where there's a uh, shack on the planet that's there sort of as a way station for uh, mercenaries and people who are making transports and stuff to refuel and things like that. And he basically goes and reveals to a system that like puts a thing like, hey, this criminal, me, has been spotted on this planet, who's like one of the most highest bountied people in the universe, and just waits for his ride to show up. Yeah. <laughs> this, the ride shows up, which are actually two different ships that show up, one a bunch of amateurs and the other a bunch of hardcores. Katie Sackhoff from Battlestar Galactica appears in a pretty cool little part in here uh, as one of the badasses. Uh, and the second part of this film is basically a the story of a bunch of highly trained mercenaries who never look up. <laughs> it becomes Predator with Riddick being the Predator. Being the Predator. And it's actually fun, too. I had fun with it. I, you know, it's not as entertain. It's not as different as the first part is, which is really unexpected and cool for this kind of movie. We've seen this type of thing before, but it's still fun. The third part is Pitch Black. It's just, it's Pitch Black <laughs> it's, again. It's Pitch Black. Monsters in the Dark. Which, to be honest, I missed Pitch Black. I was kind of glad to see it again. And it's pretty well done remake of Pitch Black. Not being as long, of course, since yeah. it's only a third of a movie, but I had fun with it. And in fact, I even thought the monsters in this one are cooler than the ones in Pitch Black. They're really well designed. I mean, this the thing about this movie you need to understand is that, uh, you know, we appreciate Pitch Black a lot. We may even at times loud it a little bit more than it deserves. Sure. And that may be because of how bad Chronicles of Riddick was. It really was. But the fact is that this is not a movie that you're going to want to, what's the word I'm thinking of, think too much about no it's not a it's not a movie where you brain it no no not at all and even though it's like well you know like we've seen commercially successful sci-fi movies that are also really smart and really like I'll, I'll point you to like looper i thought looper was one of those movies that commercially is, is really satisfying it's a lot of fun but there's also a lot of thought behind it yeah this does one of those two things i just mentioned yeah there's no question <laughs> that this movie is a lot of fun and I don't think that it, it it doesn't it's not one of those films that that does things that you regularly have to groan at because they're so stupid and unbelievable. I wouldn't say that. There are certain concessions you have to make oh, yeah. towards reality to be sure. Yeah, no, there's I mean there's a, there were a couple of moments for me where I was just like, I don't understand why you're doing it this way. One of which being he sees this place he's trying to get to, and then he comes up with this elaborate plan to kill the beast that's in his way, despite the fact that he could just walk around the one go puddle around. where that monster lives. I was like, just go around, dude. <laughs> 
he, he's Riddick. He likes things his way. Yeah. You know, he's like, I'm going, I told myself when I woke up this morning, I'm walking in a straight line and God damn it, I'm walking in a straight line. <laughs> <laughs> I will not be deterred, damn it. I, but I can't imagine not having fun watching this. I mean, yeah. this is the Riddick we like to see. This is Riddick with lots of really clever and fun one-liners. This is Riddick with bloody and creative kills. This is Riddick with a lot of tension and cool monsters it's the Riddick I was hoping they were going to make in, for the second one, and I'm really glad they did. Was Like I said, no one's ever going to allow this as one of the greatest sci-fi movies ever made. This is a solid sci-fi actioner. Uh, Vin Diesel fans will be very happy because, of course, he's the best thing in it. Uh, Definitely. I, I had much more fun than I, I did. I can't even say I didn't. There was no point I was not having fun during this. And we have a Blu-ray, DVD, and uh, ultraviolet combo pack. Oh, you get of, all that. All of it <laughs> to give away here. And, you know, this movie, it's it's a little ridiculous, but You're, in the end, I it's, see what you it's a pitch-perfect good time. Uh, see that? See how Except all... there's no part where they all sing a cappella. See, that was the one thing missing from Pitch Black, I yeah. feel. I, I would have loved if there was like a – during the credits, they all do a big – like everybody who died even comes in and they just – yeah. That would have been perfect. <laughs> no, that would not have been. Don't ever do that. I hope David Twilley is not taking me seriously. Yeah, he's definitely listening for sure. And there's a lot of extra features too. I mean, for one thing, this has got a, a – and definitely better – director's cut uh the original cuts 119 minutes this is 127 minutes and they actually because in in their theatrical version the stuff with like that ties into the previous film is literally almost a flash and that's over that's just the minimum of what you need to know here there's actually a lot more of it and it it makes it feel more organic with the rest of the film sure I mean, it's a good 10 minutes more in that world with carl urban and everything that even though I hated the last movie, everybody hated the last movie it works it makes this work better uh there's also uh, a look at Twoey and company talking on uh, the idea, how they came up with this, uh, the talking about the whole series in general, a look at all the tech behind it, uh, a, a, a thing saying Vin's Riddick, the development and ongoing evolution of Diesel's favorite anti-hero. This movie actually happened. He got the rights to it from the company because he agreed to make that cameo in Fast and the Furious 3. Oh, really? That was the trade-off deal. He he got the rights <laughs> back to the Riddick series if he would agree to do that cameo. Spoiler for the end of the, that movie. Uh, there's a thing, taking a look at all it's the Merc characters. the best two characters. hours he ever spent. <laughs> look, taking a, look at all the Merc characters. Look at the whole world of Riddick. Uh, and a promotional motion comic called Blindsided. So really, it's a pretty solid package to go with Definitely. a damn good film. Yeah, it's really generous of us to give it away. I it, agree with it you. It is. I've changed my mind. We're keeping it. <laughs> Well, as you may know, what we've been doing with our giveaways is that we've been doing sort of a creative writing prompt on Twitter. So the first thing you're going to want to do is follow one of us net at one of us net on Twitter. And uh, what we're going to do for this one is I want you to imagine that you're marooned on a, on an abandoned planet, and you look up and you realize that this planet is populated solely by whatever the most horrible thing is you can think of for you personally. For me, it would be anything to do with spider creatures because I don't do spiders. What Fuck a maroon. spiders. Yes. Mine is sharks riding on the backs of elephants, tramping and eating everything in their path. Well, that would be terrifying. Yeah, I'll give you that. That's terrible. But something like that. So just whatever the worst thing you could think of, this planet is populated with it. Tell us what that is and hashtag it Riddick giveaway. We'll pick our favorite. That person will win. Aren't you lucky? You really are. Not everybody who doesn't win. You are unlucky. But the one who does win, you know, I told you your brain would come in useful someday. I got to give a shout out to the guy that won our last giveaway, which was, of course, like, what masks would you and your crew wear for your next? That guy actually went so far as to show us a mask that he had made. And it was like, wow, a picture of him wearing that mask and a one of us T-shirt, and I was just like, when, I'm, 
I'm terrified of you. You win. Like, I'm just like, I don't know what to do. I'm pretty scared that we are conversing right Did now. Did you notice in that picture that he was actually standing in front of your house? Oh, motherfucker. Yeah. Ugh. I thought that really added to the whole effect. Gotta move again. <laughs> Fine. Whatever. Because Blu-rays are so easy to pack up when we have that many. Thanks it, a lot, dude. It only takes two years every time you change addresses to get all the people who send us Blu-rays to change the addresses in their fucking system. I'm pretty sure I'm still getting stuff to my original apartment when I, I first moved I here. got a phone call like a month ago from people from a place almost a year ago I moved out of saying, hey, we've got a whole bunch of packages here. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me right now? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going to do it for Digital Noise this week, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you have enjoyed it. Chris, I I, I hope you've enjoyed it. I have definitely enjoyed myself. Because when it comes right down to it, why do we do this if not for ourselves? All right, because of the people who listen to the show, because of us nation, because of you guys, we're so thankful. Thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, remember, no release is too big, no release is too small. Criterion to catastrophe, we review them all. Good night. Good night.